brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Happy days are here again, people. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. Welcome to the little show inside the big show, because when you really get down to it, so much of reality is crafted around us by culture creation occultists like a bad Broadway play entitled How to Bring About the Apocalypse. And it seems like they have a version for every genre, flavor, and subset of reality, as the tyrannical think tanks take your mind wherever they want it to go. And as you probably know by now, most of this work is done through the arts and entertainment. Our guards are down, our brainwaves properly recalibrated, and our mind primed to accept the themes and ideas that the titans of Tinseltown deem worthy. But even beyond the manipulation of the masses, when you just look at Hollywood and those involved, it definitely seems to take its toll, as most of us know it as the epicenter of drugs, sexual abuse, and mind control with a painted-on smile. And when it comes to revealing 8mm magic and the ideas embedded in the arts, few can touch the work of today's returning guest, Jay Dyer. He runs jaysanalysis.com, one of the premier film and philosophy sites on the net. He's also the author of Esoteric Hollywood, Sex, Cults, and Symbols in Film, which did make it to number one on Amazon in the film and Hollywood category. And today we're trying to make lightning strike twice as we gather around the digital campfire to talk about his sequel, Esoteric Hollywood 2, More sex, cults, and symbolism in film. So let's get into it. The real ritual revealer, the silver screen exposer, and the professor of motion picture propaganda, Jay, (laughs) my man, welcome to THC number three. Holy shit, Greg. That was some Bayes prose, man. Where's your prose? You need a... That was some good good prose, man. (laughs) Serious. I appreciate it, man. It's in the works. It's in the works. This year is just... Flying by, though, and I never seem to get that far down on my to-do list, which makes book number two for you all that much more impressive. And it's always great to talk to you. You know, as a pop culture and cinema junkie, I love these interviews that really get into the ideas and philosophy that are hidden behind all the Mm razzle-dazzle. For people who might not remember, Esoteric Hollywood 1 sort of focuses on clusters of films categorized by director... Kubrick, Spielberg, Hitchcock, and of course, Ian Fleming in the Bond films as well. Exactly. And today we're going to get into Esoteric Hollywood 2. 
Tell us about the structure of this latest book and the places it goes that are different from the first. Yeah, exactly. That was the main difference. I thought on the sophomore attempt, I needed to take things in a different direction and at the same time up my game while having some of the same flavor of part one. So as you mentioned, we talked a lot about Kubrick in the first one, 100 pages of Kubrick, 100 pages of Spielberg, 80 stuff. And I was like, well, I can't just repeat that. I got to go in a new direction. So I decided to do it topically. And what we started with was the mob. I thought, you know, I can't believe I didn't touch on the mafia in relationship to Hollywood, which is a huge, huge factor in that whole scene over the last century. So I start there. I do include some cult stuff and some occult stuff in part two. There's a heavy dose of that. But I also wanted to add more spy stuff and in relationship to how movies have portrayed, you know, dialectics, be it the Cold War dialectic or the East-West Islam dialectic. And then I moved to the second section after about 200 pages of that. We get into how Hollywood has pictured mind control with a selection of films. Originally, I was going to do every mind control film. I was like, I'm going to take a section and just do like a paragraph on every mind control film that I could find. But it turns out there's like a zillion of those. <laughs> there are so many, so many movies that, that dealt with the theme of MKUltra and mind control. So I had to do a selection. And then the third section. I decided to talk about weather control, geoengineering, and how that might tie into the alien mythology and psychological warfare. And then, of course, the last section, you can't leave out Hollywood transhumanism. <laughs> no, you cannot. And that is a great summary. You do cover a lot of interesting material in here. Like you mentioned, you kick this thing off with the mafia and mobs in film. I wanted to get deeper into that. It's very interesting. I once did an interview with Brian Tahui, who wrote The Fix Is In, and he focuses on just how involved the mob is in the massive sports gambling industry. A little more obvious, but he also talks about how very few outcomes in sports are actually organic because of this mob control. But as you say in the book, they have also got their hands in Hollywood, right? Way more so than most people might think. Yeah, there's some really crazy stories about the relationship of Hollywood to the mafia. And I think everybody's kind of familiar with the mainline mafia films that have kind of gone down in history as the greats, you know, Goodfellas or The Godfather. And I wrote a fairly popular essay on The Godfather a few years ago. So I kind of spruced that up and added some more information because I came across recent stuff that a lot of people wouldn't know that, for example, the role of Al Pacino to play Michael Corleone, he actually had to get permission from the mafia to do that. <laughs> mm. and they had somebody else in mind, so they had to make some deals, basically backroom deals in some casinos. This was actually decided in some casinos in Las Vegas. And that actually comes from a famous mob chronicler, Gus Russo, who has a famous book on the mafia who describes this whole story. And the reason I bring that up is because, you know, I think last time, we might have touched on David Lynch and Twin Peaks and all that. Mm -hmm. And one of the analyses I did of David Lynch was Mahon Drive. And you have that weird scene of Mahon Drive where this sort of little midget dude behind a glass screen is deciding who gets what role. And, you know, of course, the cowboy later on is this sort of supernatural figure who partly decides who gets that role in the film. So basically we have the mafia deciding who gets what role. So we have that in Mahon Drive and then, I came across an actual example documented in the Gus Russo book. So I thought, yeah, I gotta, I've got to include that and tie it into how you know the Godfather trilogy really does portray 
how the world really works. That's why movies are so powerful in this way is that the world is structured like global mafias basically running everything. Hmm. And it is so interesting because it's a lot like how the military must sign off on any film that's going to use all their toys in the storytelling. That's why they're all positive. And you wouldn't necessarily think you'd need the mob's permission to make a movie about them, but they're not shy about killing people. So it might be nice to get that endorsement. Exactly. And since the time of the Cold War, the various mafias were pretty closely tied to the CIA. There was actually a series of deals that were made around the time of the JFK assassination, which actually does factor into the situation with JFK and what happened to him. I'm not saying it was only the mob. I'm just saying there is a mob and CIA background to that. And there's a documentary that a guy who's actually a screenplay writer who is working on a new mafia film, he sent me a he said, hey, you need to watch this documentary. And it was about Sam Giancana, or, or they call Momo, the Chicago mobster. And it's just a mainline documentary on him, if you can find that Momo documentary. But it actually has a lot of connections that are made between the mafia and the JFK situation. And so you're absolutely right to talk about the approval of the intelligence agencies. But the intelligence agencies are locked at the hip, not just to Hollywood, but also to the mafia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And kind of on this theme... If you've seen Ozarks, they use construction projects in that show as big drug money laundering operations because you can sink so much money into a project and it's hard to really qualify where it all went. A strategy I'm sure our president knows quite well. But <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> movie studios, they're kind of similar in that the budgets can be massive and sometimes you don't even need to produce a final product to make a couple million dollars sound reasonable. Talk to us a little bit about money laundering in Hollywood or this idea of studios as fronts, because there's a lot of history there, right? There was. This was I had a, a film nerd friend who told me this many years ago. And when he first told me that, even though I was all into this Hollywood conspiracy stuff, even at the time, he said, you know, a lot of these studios are money laundering. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. <laughs> no, they're not. And sure enough, when I started researching just the topic of backdoor connections to Hollywood. That's what comes to the fore right away. In fact, there's a guy, Douglas Thompson, he wrote a whole book that touches on this dark heart of Hollywood. And, you know, he pointed out all these examples of situations where studios functioned as fronts. And I think one thing to understand is that it's not just one thing. Like a studio doesn't have to just be a front for money laundering. Like it can function in different things as different tools. I mean, they are also making the money. It can be a way to stash money to avoid taxes. It can be a way to funnel operations. And it could even be a cover for a black op. In other words, a movie studio or movie crew could actually go and do something that is working for an ulterior purpose. And everybody knows this now if you saw Argo. Right? That was the whole plot of Argo was that this goofy sci-fi movie that was fake was an intelligence front. And that's all very real. But we've had many cases of people who've been convicted, Christopher Abert's was convicted of using his studio and screenwriting and all that as a front for money laundering. There have been cases where the FBI actually set up an independent film studio. They put out films, <laughs> but this whole thing was just a front for a various uh, FBI surveillance operations. So there's a lot of examples of this, even drug trafficking. There have been Hollywood directors and studios, and it starts to make sense, though. You could see why everybody kind of has a reverence for uh, movie makers, right? And so if you show up in your Cessna and you're like, oh, I'm here to uh, film a movie. Oh, you're with Hollywood. That's an easy cover, right? To like move drugs or even weapons or something like this. 
Mm-hmm. And it really is genius because if someone were to tell you the budget of a film was fifty million versus one hundred and fifty million, yeah, to the layman, I mean, that makes no difference. But that's a hundred million dollars difference, so it is kind of appealing to use it for that reason. And you have an example of Limelight. This is one I didn't know, but in two thousand six, they were busted as an ecstasy dealing and drug trafficking ring, and Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter was president <laughs> of that company. <laughs> Yeah, that one was so crazy. I had to stick it in there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and then I think after that, Douglas Thompson goes on to talk about other examples of mafia laundering. I think he says in one case, $200 million through special effects extravaganzas. And then he goes on to talk about the $94 million budget for Tomb Raider involved some very fanciful arithmetic when mm. they actually came down to what was made and what wasn't made. So Yes, this is a huge thing. You start to wonder, well, if it's that crazy in these examples, it's probably crazy in other examples. Like, what else is going on? You know, maybe something was going on with the Netflix series Narcos. Mm-hmm. This guy gets killed while he's scouting for locations. Again, I'm just speculating here, but we start to realize that all these worlds connect. You know, when I did the first book, it was about sex cults, Hollywood, secret societies. Now we're starting to see, oh, wait a minute, guess what? Cartels, they also factor into this. The mafia factors into this. And it's corporations, right? I mean, what is a movie studio? What are these giant studios but private corporations? So, again, all of these worlds intertwine and intersect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that classic B-movie, The Room, but that's mm-hmm. always been the speculation with that Tommy Wiseau guy. Oh, hi, Greg. Oh, hi, Greg. Right, right, yeah. People call it, you know, the worst movie ever made right up there with Plan 9, but it has a $6 million budget, and it looks like it was filmed just in an abandoned house somewhere. It's still kind of a mystery where this weirdo got the money, and the big speculation yeah. is that he was connected. That's a great point. Yeah, it happens in B-movies for sure. I think, in fact, a lot of B-movies. I did an interview with Mark Hackard uh, a couple of years ago, and we were discussing movie studios as intelligence fronts. And he wrote an essay about a whole studio that was set up in the UK that was run by the Soviets back during the Cold War. And in that interview, we got to talking about a movie that starred Dolph Lundgren, Red Scorpion, that's the name of it. I think it's in the late 80s, maybe 1990, somewhere in there. Just this crappy kind of special operations dumb movie from... 1990, but the movie appears to have been a kind of front for some intelligence operation. It was filmed somewhere where the CIA had, you know, a particular interest at the time. And one of the reasons we know that is that the producer, I think it's the producer. I mean, I'm going from two years ago memory, but the producer was like Elliot. It was Elliot Abrams from, uh, you know, a Valerie Plame and Neocon fame. Why is Elliot Abrams the producer of this ridiculous Dolph Lundgren movie? And then come to find out other movies like What's that movie about the uh, the guy who's the track star? You know, it was popular in the 80s. And I can think of the theme song. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> I think I skip most track star movies, to tell you the truth. I, well, I know. I, I don't care about that. Either, <laughs> this guy was like the Olympics guy, really famous Olympics guy. And I think the story is that he was a like he wouldn't run on Saturdays or Sundays for religious reasons. It was a big award winning you know, movie in the 80s. Hmm. Anyway. Guess who was the producer on that? Dodi Fayed. <laughs> so here we have like Dodi Fayed of, you know, Princess Diana fame. And you start to realize, why are these people producers of movies? 
it's because they're involved in all of the stuff and, and the movie studios are a big part of that. Yeah, and it even filters into seemingly innocent things that you'll find in the realms of TV like Cupcake Wars or Julia Childs. Apparently she was connected in some regard. Why would somebody involved in a cooking show have a background in intelligence or why would that be something that intelligence puts them into? You know, where where's that connection getting made? Yes, she was a member, of course, of the OSS, Julia Child was, and that's the nascent CIA, the predecessor of the CIA that the British intelligence set up for the U.S. It was actually Ian Fleming, of all people, William Stevenson, who came and on the part of the British Empire kind of negotiated with Bill Donovan in, in 1942 how to set up this version of what British intelligence had. And it was very successful. Again, it morphs into 1947, the CIA. So when you understand that this stuff is not about a lot of surveillance and spying, per se. That's one little aspect of what intelligence stuff is. But a bigger part of it is culture creation. And that's much more important to the global planners, to the big elite, than just surveillance. Especially nowadays, with everybody willingly putting all their information online, that surveillance is less important than is culture creation. So that's what most people don't understand about the CIA and the OSS is that it was about culture creation from the get-go. And when you look at it that way, well, food is a big part of culture, isn't it? Well, yeah. So that makes a perfect vehicle for a person to also be a spy or to be involved in that kind of an operation because in many ways it can provide a cover. You know, if you're going to all these different countries, maybe somebody like Bourdain, perhaps. Hmm. You know, they go to all these countries and their cover is, oh, I'm here just to film my food show. Uh, by the way, I've got to go meet with, you know, the president of the country for a certain reason, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, food is culture. And so, you know, I was reading a book that was talking about, from the globalist perspective, fast food was actually engineered for the purposes of getting people away from eating a family meal. So even though Julia Child might not have been when she was in the OSS and then having her cooking show, she might not have been promoting fast food. What I'm getting at is that from the perspective of the intelligence agencies or the Pentagon or the social planners, you definitely want to control food. I mean, you know, Bertrand Russell says diet is of the utmost importance for control on the part of the global elite. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, even though it's not something people think about often. And by the way, the movie is Chariots of Fire. That's the famous 80s movie about the runner. Oh, Chariots of Fire. Yes, (laughs) I do know that title. And kind of on the themes we're talking about, if you've ever seen that movie Confessions of a Dangerous Mind based on the book written by Chuck Barris. Now, I mean, obviously this is in the realm of comedy, but sometimes there's truth in comedy. But he wrote that book about the idea that when he was the host on a show like The Dating Game, he's taken these contestants on international trips as a chaperone, and then he's also moonlighting with some kind of covert ops in that same kind of way. Love that movie. That was really the first one when I was younger that brought to mind the idea that, whoa, these these could be giant cover operations. Yeah, so this is a big George Clooney film. I think he's connected to the production company that made A Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, if I recall. Yeah, he did direct it. I was unaware of that. Exactly, yeah. And so Clooney, my suspicion about that is that Clooney himself is most likely worked for the CIA. I mean, he when you get to that level, you know, you've got Angelina Jolie being directly involved in the CFR. I think it's very reasonable given 
Clooney's history and his activities that he's probably involved in that as well. Ben Affleck, Ben Affleck's pretty open about it. Like he talks about, yeah, Hollywood's full of CIA. Hmm. So I think maybe Clooney was making that movie because he, he maybe he related to it a little bit. I'm not saying he's an assassin. <laughs> right, right, right. That from that vantage point where Clooney's at in terms of mega A-lister, global star, you know, he can understand and he's telegraphing to us exactly, you know, how the world really works, how it's not like you think even actors are not always what you think. Many, many of them have been spies all the way back to Errol Flynn, all the way back to some of the biggest stars, even under Stalin, one of the top actresses of the Soviet Union. I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she was Stalin's like right hand spy woman. It's pretty crazy. Hmm. Yeah. And it also could be an example of this thing where they take a template for something very real and they make it a silly example like mm -hmm. Chuck Barris in the dating game. And then when people hear about it as a reality, they're like, oh, well, that's that bullshit we saw in that movie. There's no way that kind of thing is true. They just kind of take the air out of the idea, even though it might be a legitimate thing that happens in other cases outside of the one where they're making a joke out of it. It does have that yeah, disarming kind of it can throw you for a loop initially when you start to see it in reality and you've been conditioned to it. That really, I think, is the main point of predictive programming. What you're talking about definitely plays into that because on a subconscious level, and it actually has been studied on a subconscious level, they studied Hitchcock films uh, on a subconscious level to see how it affected the audience back when he premiered Psycho. So they've been at this for a long time. And so they're definitely aware of how a person perceiving something as fiction can alter their perception when it becomes reality. That's, a, again, a big part of how you condition people. We can talk about the esoteric element to predictive programming. I think it is there. I think a lot of the people who are involved in predictive programming do have esoteric type worldviews, but just on a practical level, functions very well to kind of gaslight people and prep them for events that come in the future. So I think you're right to stick to the practical purpose of why it's done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so let's get into probably the biggest film franchise about the mafia. Let's talk about The Godfather. You spent a lot of time on it in the book. What might people not know about it? Or what about this trilogy do you see as agenda-driven? Well, there's a lot of different layers to it. I think when Mario Puzo wrote his novel, he actually interviewed a whole bunch of living dons. So the book is a mix of the perspective of a lot of different mobsters. So it's not just one guy, but it is essentially the Sicilian mafia. But again, he had to get permission not just from the Italian dons, but he also had to get permission from the Jewish mafia to do the movie the way that he did. And that's covered in Gus Russo's book. But the aspect that most people don't realize is that there's, as the trilogy progresses, there's actually more revelation as it moves into parts two and three about the real world. Now, most critics obviously prefer part one. Part two is still considered a great film. A lot of people are kind of down on part three. But actually, again, by the time of part three, you're getting some pretty heavy doses of secret society, backdoor P2 type stuff that relates to Gladio. So if you're familiar with Operation Gladio, this was the stay behind networks that the CIA and NATO had in place in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And this was, of course, supposedly so that the Soviets, communists wouldn't take over Europe. So what they had was these cell networks that basically were terrorists. And they, again, were black ops guys and they were recruited as paramilitary out of the Italian fascist lodges. 
in Italy, the Grand Orient Fascist Lodges called P2. So they would do terror operations. They would do all kinds of crazy stuff, false flag type stuff to blame the commies and the Soviets. This actually plays into part three. And most people don't catch that because the Andy Garcia character, when Michael Corleone is being taken down and the figure who plays Pope John Paul I in the movie, when they're being taken down, Andy Garcia says, you know, this is P2, right? Mm. <laughs> and it's a very sort of brief kind of off-the-cuff thing that Andy Garcia says, because he's, if you don't recall, he's taking over from Michael Corleone. He's the next Don for the family. And what we see is really the downfall of the family there, because Michael has moved into international relations. He's taken his front, and actually, in part three, he creates an NGO. He creates a tax-free foundation that's involved in land deals. So he's moved from the big time. He's not just a small-time family mobster in New York, he's actually moved into global operations. And this is, again, telling for how the world really works and how it ties into not just secret societies and intelligence operations like P2 or Gladio, but actually how it ties into international banking, NGOs, and think tanks. Right. I actually love that about it. And maybe it didn't come across as entertaining. Maybe it's a little drier, but that is kind of the path. And I like that the third one goes into that. And in that section of your book, you talk a lot about the Catholic Church, of course. Yes, right. And I know you are an Orthodox Christian, but you know a lot about the geopolitics of the Vatican. Mm -hmm. And you say the co-opting of the Vatican is much earlier than the Vatican II conspiracy most Catholics adhere to. Can you break that down for us a bit? What is the conventional conspiracy and what would you point to that leads you to think that it was actually co-opted even before that? Yeah, that's a great question. Basically, the traditional conspiracy, you could say, is that by the time of Vatican II, a whole bunch of Freemasons, Satanists, Illuminists, and all manner of nefarious groups had made their way into the Vatican and into the power structure. They had captured a lot of the cardinals. People will typically point to Cardinal Rampola, who around the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, was actually in the OTO. And Cardinal, the story is at least that Cardinal Rampola almost was made Pope at that time. His election was actually blocked, though, by, I think, the Hungarian emperor at the time. So this line of reasoning says that, well, what happened at Vatican II was that they essentially came out of the closet with their victorious control of the office of the papacy. And so ever since that time, you've had this commandeering, which is turning the Vatican into a global network for the promotion of an apostate kind of new world religion. That's the conventional conspiracy on what happened in the 20th century to the Roman Catholic Church. But there's a deeper picture here that most people aren't aware of, and this has really been detailed in an academic way by a traditional Catholic himself named David Wimhoff, who has put out a book about John Courtney Murray and the subversion of the church. And what he shows is that it's not really a conglomeration of masons per se there is a masonic element to the subversion of the catholic church but the real power structure that was able to subvert the catholic church in the 20th century was the cia and they did this through the auspices of the cold war and when i read that it really resonated with a lot of things i'd read in the past about how john paul ii actually had weekly meetings i think it was weekly with william colby and they were talking about how to break down the wall how to engineer the convergence between 
Eastern Soviet bloc communism and Western capitalism. And so there was a meeting at Malta in, I think, 1988 between Bush Sr., John Paul II, and Gorbachev. And this really signified the fall of the Soviet Union. And then, of course, everybody knows about the bankers kind of coming in and raping Russia after this. Uh, again, all engineered by Western intelligence, by the Harvard boys, Larry Summers, the Clinton crew and all that. That's who was behind the raping of Russia in the 90s. But it was preceded by this operation of these meetings between Bush Sr. and Gorbachev and John Paul II. So I think it's very easily demonstrable that it's not just theological ideology that drove the events of Vatican II. And on top of that, you can go back further. I think Hoffman has documented in his book, Occult Renaissance Church of Rome, that the subversion on the part of the Roman Catholic Church can extend all the way back to the Renaissance. Because you had these really corrupt Borgia popes, which everybody kind of knows about. They've been making like Showtime and HBO shows <laughs> about these Borgia popes. And they would castrate boys back then to sing in their choir. And the Pope had his like private choir of castrated choir boys, which I mean, that's, to me, is completely psychotic. But, Yikes. but you know, when you start to think about it like that, it's like, well, now, wait a minute. Maybe this kind of corruption didn't just begin with, you know, recent Vatican II liberal development in the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe this goes back, you know, a thousand years ago. Yeah, they say Michael Jackson's dad had him chemically castrated so he would keep his yeah. voice. I mean, you right. got to keep that money train going. If you got a golden goose laying golden eggs, then uh, I guess you just uh, disintegrate their genitals with chemicals and keep it going. <laughs> yeah, right. Also, too, the banking side of it, too. I mean, everybody kind of has... Especially if you're in the conspiracy world, you've heard a little bit about the Banco d'Ambrosia, perhaps, and the Vatican Bank scandal, where certain bankers ended up hanging in a Masonic pose upside down from a bridge, Blackfriars Bridge. This is a famous ritual murder that related directly to the assassination of John Paul. And I do think he was assassinated. The assassination of John Paul I, after 33 days of being Pope, I don't think that's accidental that he was Pope for 33 days and then was assassinated. <laughs> But that's also in Godfather 3. In fact, the character Roberto Calvi is pictured in the film. You see him assassinated. And real world assassination here, He, this guy actually was hanging upside. I think it was in the death pose. You know, if you're familiar with the tarot card of the death pose with the guy's leg hanging down, mm -hmm. that's how he was hanging, if I recall. So that was definitely a hit. It was probably a P2 hit. And pretty well known. But the Vatican Bank scandal shows us that, guess what? The Vatican Bank wasn't just a problem that popped into existence in the 20th century. By public admission, the Rothschilds have been running the Vatican Bank all the way back to the 1700s. And I don't think it just begins with the Rothschilds. I think you can go back, you know, again, you go back to these Borgia popes. I mean, there was tremendous corruption back then, and everybody knows about it. Mm -hmm. So interesting. And something I didn't expect to see in the book was a breakdown of your thoughts on the Marian apparition event, Our Lady of Fatima, mm -hmm. you got a pretty interesting take on that. How do you interpret that saga? I came to this conclusion because I did for many years go to a traditional Catholic church. So I was kind of in that mindset. I know what it's like to be locked into that box and to read everything from that limited perspective. And one of the things, of course, that they will always point to is this great, vast miracle, of supposedly of Fatima. And I thought it was appropriate to stick it in there just because it ties in so clearly to the Cold War. Again, I mean, I, I know that Fatima precedes the Cold War, but what happens to the Roman Catholic Church, as Wemhoff points out in his book, John Courtney Murray and 
the CIA and the doctrinal warfare program that took over the Catholic Church is essentially what his book is about. John Courtney Murray is one of the famous theologians present at Vatican II. But what happens is the Catholic Church becomes a tool of Americanism and the CIA to promote American ideas, which are then supposedly identified with the Roman Catholic Church across the globe. It literally becomes this engine to promote this stuff. And even though a lot of people were sincere, they thought, oh, yes, we got to fight the godless Soviet empire. And I'm not saying that the Soviets were good. I think it's, again, a dialectic at work here. What happens is that they start turning out movies. Catholic movies get turned out all throughout this period. And we have to go back to Fatima because when Mary supposedly appears at Fatima and gives this warning of the prediction of World War One, I, I think it's curious that her explanation of why Russia has to be stopped is because of the errors of communism that are going to be promoted from Russia, is what the apparition supposedly says. But she doesn't mention that Russia's errors come from England. It's the Atlanticist power block that exports the bankers in England. And that's who exports Marxism to Russia, from London to Russia. So when that's exported, you know, Mary just forgot to mention this. But what we see is that this is a targeted apparition that specifically makes Russia into the bad guy. And surprise, surprise, the two chief enemies of the Western Empire, the Atlanticist Empire of the 20th century, are Russia and Germany. So it just happens to be the case that the apparition targets one of the two chief enemies of the Western elite power structure. No, I think it's engineered, and it was engineered for geostrategic purposes. If it's perfectly into the great game, that's exactly what the great game is about, getting rid of Russia. So that's my take on Fatima. And I found CIA discussions where in famous books, Victor Marchetti's book, they talked about how to stage apparitions to mobilize the local populations for the purpose of geopolitical ends. Hmm. Yeah, it's not unprecedented for intelligence agencies to lean into superstitions and the supernatural. Right. And when you think about the content of the message being so wrapped up in geopolitics, it's hard to see it as genuine. But I guess I still think about the technology. I mean, we're talking about blue beam stuff. Everybody's like worried about, oh, they might use blue beam to stage some big event. Well, they clearly have been able to make things look supernatural at a time depth in which I would think the technology wouldn't really be there to make it seem viable, but clearly they got something. They're doing something. I don't know if it's just smoke machines and a flashy costume, but it's convincing to some people. Well, if you know, I'm not trying to be too much of a, like a Reddit skeptic type of dude, but <laughs> I will say that if you know when a stellar conjunction or some sort of stellar phenomenon is coming, I mean, we know an ancient priest knew when there would be strange stellar phenomena just on the basis of calendars, right? There would be a conjunction. There would be like an eclipse or something even. Yeah, exactly. And so if you knew that that was coming, then you could quite easily dupe a bunch of Portuguese villagers and simpletons, in other words. So I think that that's a possibility. And another possibility, too, is that the news story is just made up. Like they just created the news story in the local papers. and. Either there wasn't this phenomenon, or they duped a bunch of villagers, or like you said, it is possible that there was some kind of weird phenomenon that we don't know about. But even that doesn't necessarily mean that that vindicates Roman Catholicism. Maybe there was a phenomenon that happened, and maybe some villagers decided, hey, I can get famous from this, and let me marry talk to me, mm -hmm. right? 
Or, again, it was a geostrategic thing, and the bankers had already planned to have World War I. And so they needed a kind of apparition to mobilize large forces of the Catholic perception. And if you think that seems a little strange, uh, let me remind you that H.G. Wells, when he did Shape of Things to Come, this is actually four or five years prior to World War II. And he predicts exactly what would happen, all the bombing campaigns, all the crazy stuff that would happen in World War II, a lot of which didn't exist yet. Like a lot of the ideas of, I mean, nobody would have believed that there would be this giant world war with big bombing campaigns. Now, did he predict it or did he know that the bankers had planned World War II? I think he knew that they had planned it. And I think it's reasonable to suspect that this is what was going on at Fatima as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's a take I hadn't heard, but I've heard that template applied to other situations. So I don't think it's completely unreasonable. And something I kind of expected to see in a book about Hollywood sex and cults, but didn't really, is the Nexium cult stuff with Keith Rainier and Allison Mack. I know you've done some videos about it, mm -hmm. but that is a crazy template and an example of something that's probably a lot deeper what have you seen when you looked into that case? I mean, is it basically just another template for the kind of stuff that is there but doesn't bubble up to the surface very often? I think you're right. It would have been ideal if that information had come out when I wrote the first one. I mean, yeah. it, would, it would have been perfect. It should have had its own chapter. And I could have stuck it in part two, but the problem is that I already had pretty much the manuscript and all that to the publisher before the meat of the Nexium stuff came out. Mm. So right when the Nexium stuff was starting to make headlines, the manuscript was done, and then it was a little bit too late to add that stuff. But you're right. I wish that I had put it in there because it really is a vindication of a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about. It goes up to the highest levels of the global elite in terms of the Bronfman dynasty. You've got it connected to all these NGOs, the Clinton Global Initiative people involved in it, a lot of other corporation-connected people, Fortune 500 types. And it seems to have a global stretch. And it functioned like a weird Amway type of thing, like a pyramid scheme mixed with a sex cult, mixed with brainwashing. And now other stuff's coming out, like Rainier guy supposedly had to, it was trafficking child porn type stuff too. So presumably uh, human trafficking is involved. I'm not positive that's been substantiated yet, but presumably that's there. And then most recently in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the John of God cult come to the fore. He's reportedly involved in a lot of not just abuse, but perhaps even baby farming. The girl who pointed this out mysteriously ends up suicided. I think that's suspicious. Wow. And also connected to the same circles of Nexium. I'm not saying John of God wasn't in Nexium, but a lot of the same high-powered people running in the same circles as Nexium. So you're absolutely right. It ties directly into Hollywood with Alison Mack and all that. And I just see it as a vindication. I wish that I had... Uh, included it in part two, but it was it was too soon. Well, fuel for the trilogy. Exactly. And I'm not exactly familiar with, did you say John of God? Yeah, there was a big cult bust in Brazil, I think, or Peru. Maybe it was Peru, but it's been some weeks now. It's kind of out of the news, but it was a big news story maybe three weeks ago. And this was a weirdo New Age faith healer guy, surprise, surprise, who sits under a giant pyramid nothing suspicious there maybe <laughs> maybe if a guy's sitting under a giant pyramid there's a little you know something shady going on but a lot of people had made these pilgrimages to him a lot of kind of the new age crowd that wanted healing and to raise their vibrations and consciousness that kind of stuff <laughs> and turns out this guy had abused 
and the accusations are rape, countless women. Wow. Then it came out that one of, I think it was not just his daughter was accusing him of abusing her, but another woman who was involved in the group said that it's worse. They actually are involved in human trafficking and they have breeders. Now, you know, if you're familiar with the satanic ritual abuse phenomenon, this has been bantered about for a long time, the idea of breeders kind of viewed as still fringe, I guess you could say. So the woman who made the accusation that he was running a baby farm, uh, everybody kind of took that as tabloidy. Well, she actually ends up dead a few days later. And this is mainstream news. It's not conspiracy sites. Totally mainstream news. She ended up in Spain, I think, and had been suicided. Hmm. Immediately after making the public accusation that he was running a baby farm. And the John of God character himself was affiliated with Oprah and all these, you know, really high level international type people. And Oprah immediately released a statement <laughs> like, sorry, I, I promoted this guy a couple of years ago. Sorry, I, I promoted him. We, we disassociate. Oops, my bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, how many times do we see orphanages connected to child exactly. abuse? And uh, there was just that scandal about the catholic church and these priests banging the nuns and then they'd chain the mm. nuns up during their pregnancy and then who knows what they do with that baby afterwards but uh exactly dark stuff i would say the burger thing is real yeah i would venture to say that so. i would say so too i mean there are people who will make money off anything and it's unfortunate that human beings are a commodity to people in that world and so if you can make them out of thin air by abusing just a few women, <laughs> some people are going to do it. Yeah, even one of the big battle rappers, I don't know if you're familiar with Daylight, but he's a fairly popular battle rap guy. He made a pretty wild video where he talks about how, for certain reasons, he wanted to get on the dark web some years ago to download something. He, was, he said he was trying to buy a silencer for a gun that he had. And he says he came across some of these rooms where they they do this kind of hostile style torture type stuff. Yeah. Now, I've never looked at any of that or I don't have any interest in that. But the point is that he was making the argument that a lot of that kind of human trafficking type stuff that you hear about, you know, he was saying it's real. And unless this was some high super technical stage thing that was all fake, he's like, you know, that it looked real to me. And that would involve trafficking. I don't doubt it. I've watched some videos that act as guides to the deep web because I'm not willing to actually like go mess around there. But I am no. curious. <laughs> and the darkest thing I had seen was a guy pulls up this website where they say, you know, it's somewhere in some third world country. It's just a bunch of jail cells, basically. Right. And they say, we will do any science that you want. Do you want to know? The effects of aluminum in high doses on pregnant women will get you that data. Wow. Do you want to know, you know, this, that, and the other? And so you don't ask any questions. You just say, yeah, I want to know this chemical, this condition, what it does to people, and they'll tell you. And uh, that is scary stuff. Yeah, and there was the story of the cannibal too. So even cannibalism comes into this with – it usually makes it into everybody's top ten – Dark web stories. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen. No. My name is Chills, and I'm going to show you the top 10 dark web stories. I hope that you don't get scared. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's one of these top 10 type channel guys. But uh, mm. in one of his dark web videos, he talks about the cannibal case in one of the Nordic countries. But the guy was actually literally a cannibal. And 
he found a service on the dark web for meeting up with other cannibals. And the weird part of that story was the guy was ended up getting convicted. I can't remember. He's got a weird Nordic type name, but he found a guy who wanted to be eaten. <laughs> that was his fantasy. It was a gay guy who wanted to make love and then literally be cooked and eaten. And the cannibal obliged him. <laughs> Jeez. I guess he was like a praying mantis in a previous life or something. There you go. Right. So he, yeah. And the dude ended up convicted. But that's one of the kind of the more famous dark, dark web stories. Man. Oh, by the way, by the way, let me add real quick. Many years ago, I turned up because I heard about that story a long time ago. And I remember researching it. I cannot dig up again where I located it. But I do recall a pretty sourced document on that case, well-sourced, that actually argued that the cannibal guy was actively involved in one of the sort of the darker occult groups. Mm. And they had a pretty solid case for that. I can't dig up again where it was, but I do think that's also possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, a lot of crazy stuff going on out there. And that Nexium cult just, I always use that as an example now. I'm waiting for some books to start coming out that are just focused on that because it checks all the boxes. I mean, he's tricking young girls into making porn for a private collection. Mm -hmm. He's using branding, psychological torture, sleep deprivation. These slaves apparently were blackmailed into providing new collateral, sometimes as often as every month, whether it's porn or signing over assets or some kind of thing that the group could use to end their career if it took off. It kind of reminds me of Scientology because they're very much about that confession element. You've got like a handler who you're supposed to tell everything to. And then, of course, it's used when you want to try to get out. Exactly. And uh, you can't. But what's crazy about Nexium is it says like all the articles I can find say that it's funded by wealthy donors. And you mentioned a couple of organizations, the Clinton Foundation tangentially might be connected. But mm -hmm. I still don't know really where all that money is coming from. Who's really funding something like the Nexium cult. Hopefully it comes out in court. They already arraigned Claire Bronfman. Hmm. I mean, that was like big news when it first broke. She made her bail, but I don't know if the court date has gone through yet, but she's had her trial. But the accusation was that the money came from the Bronfman dining. That's the Seagram's. So Seagram's alcohol. Oh, okay. That's the Canadian mega billionaire family, the Bronfmans. They're also bought into media. So they're one of the big elite families, and that's reportedly, at least, according to just mainstream news, where the money came from for the cult. Hmm. Wow. Wow. So to get back to your book, let me ask you about uh, V for Vendetta, because it's a film that I love. I even named my cat Evie, but you are pretty hard on it. You write, Alan Moore is undoubtedly a talented artist and storyteller, mm -hmm. but the notion that V for Vendetta is a story geared towards human liberation, as masses of ignorant fans assume, is laughable. Mm -hmm. And of course, Anonymous and Occupy and all that stuff came after and was very politicized and it was sort of a commercialization of rebellion. I get all that. But how is the film itself not about liberation? I mean, I've watched a lot of interviews with Alan Moore, and I don't doubt that he personally thinks he's on a process of self-liberation. I'm sure he intended the meaning of the story to be liberation. But I want to highlight the reason I tied it into like anarchism is because I am critical of anarchism. I see it as a tool Again, I'm not talking about the sincerity of individuals or the artists who put it out. They may be completely sincere in terms of seeking and wanting liberation. But 
what I wanted to illustrate was that anarchism or anarcho-terrorism is and has historically been used in a dialectic or even a trialectic. I mean, if you look at the history of the British Empire, they were some of the first to utilize anarchism as a means of staging stuff. For example, when I talked a minute ago about Gladio and the Cold War, just because Operation Gladio and the NATO stay behind people staged and blame things on the communists. In my view, that doesn't make communism good just because you were, that was part of this big kind of dialectic. And it's not like there's only two options of like, well, are you a Western capitalist or are you an Eastern collectivist communist? There's also anarcho terror type stuff. And I view that as typically having been used as well. And I don't think that the system is going to allow artworks out that promote the kind of anarcho cyberpunk i'm the true rebel type of view that's not going to try to co-opt it into an aspect of the system that is still useful to the system so what i'm trying to say is i want to separate the individual artist's intention which that may have been to do that you know it's kind of like with kubrick was kubrick part of the system or was he really trying to tell people how evil it was well I mean, you could argue that point but what i was interested in was just the approach of the film itself in terms of its commercialization I mean, you've got hot topic used to have guy fox masks right i mean that's like is punk music really punk if it's everywhere in hot topic and mm. i see those things as establishment stamped approval rebellion movements and again there are people, it's like Dave McGowan's thesis on the Laurel Canyon scene. A lot of the artists were genuinely anti-war. But if you don't have a foundation or a perspective from which to actually critique why war is wrong, a philosophy, if you don't have a grounding to be able to do that, if you just have this, you know, whatever you believe is true, man, whatever I believe, like that just relativistic type of view is itself problematic. It doesn't work. So I think you need to be better grounded. And that's what I was going for in the critique. Right on. I mean, that is a great point. When I was in high school and I was a punk kid complaining about the bullshit of The Gap and Abercrombie, right. and then somebody told me that the same company owns at least a couple of these different stores, and I was just like, those motherfuckers, they got me. <laughs> yeah. you know? uh, but let's talk about anarchism a little bit more, because you do say, I have the quote here in the book, you say, uh, you consider anarchy being the worldview par excellence of the elite because it's the most destructive. And you say ultimate liberty is really absolute slavery to the passions. And I sort of see what you're getting at, the whole overindulgence, Satanism, do what yeah. thou will stuff. Right. But I look at something like the drug war, right? Personally, I think all drugs should be legal. I think you should have the freedom to fuck yourself up if you so choose. But if the state were to give me the freedom to do heroin legally, it doesn't mean I have to indulge, right? So that's kind of where I bring in that personal responsibility. I think we should have ultimate liberty, but that doesn't mean that you must have ultimate indulgence. That's true. This gets into a question of complex issues of the role of the state and the role of private corporations. And I think you're right to say that you know, 100 years ago, you could walk into an apothecary and you could simply buy opiates or you could buy cocaine. I don't necessarily have a problem with the free sale of those things. The problem is that we're in a situation now where, where society has been degenerated on purpose. So one of the problems with that perspective of just kind of the basic sort of libertarian approach is that it misses the fact of 
culture creation and toxic culture. So the corporations can buy the government off and then they can, through the government, kind of channel everybody into things that destroy and denigrate culture. Then when the culture is denigrated and collapsed, they can make all this stuff freely available. This is what you see in Brave New World where drugs are basically mass available to the population because they've lost the ability to have self-control. So I would agree with you in principle. I mean, I do think THC has all kinds of positive healing benefits. It should be available in its organic way. It would do a lot better for people than all these SSRIs and this big pharma crap. So I'm totally pro-THC in terms of its healing properties. But I'm just saying it's a little more complex when we factor in the issues of social engineering and the role of the corporate state in intentionally trying to make things legal at a state. And again, I'm not saying that THC should be illegal. What I'm saying is that when you've denigrated a culture to the point where people don't have self-control, then you can flood them like with the opiates, right? Like the Oxycontin being made available to the middle Americans, to people in the South. It's the same model that the CIA did with uh, targeting the ghetto with crack cocaine. And I think this is all done on purpose. I think they flooded the South, the rednecks with meth, just like they flooded blacks with crack. That doesn't mean that the drug war is true and good and we should have you know, the bad guys running the drug war. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's really complex when you start looking at it from all these different vantage points. And I'm not saying that because they flooded the ghetto with crack, that we should therefore not have restrictions or have complete availability of all these things. Because again, they didn't flood the ghetto with crack until they had broken down the morals of blacks in America. Mm -hmm. And they did that through toxic culture. Then they could destroy and damage the people group more easily through something like crack. And I'm blaming the establishment. I'm saying it's the corporate government that did that intentionally. So in principle, I agree with you that if we were in a situation where society was a little more self-controlled, it wouldn't be a problem for people to go down to the apothecary and buy cocaine if they needed it for something or to buy THC if they needed it for something. It's just a big giant mess is all I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And just to put a cherry on top of this whole thing, obviously you write about a lot of great stuff in this book, but a book takes a long time to write. Let me ask you, what is the most recently released film that you've seen that you think needs to be properly mined for the type of content you cover, even if you haven't got to it at the depths that you normally would? Probably Panos Cosmatos, I guess, with Mandy and huh. Beyond the Black Rainbow. Now, I had seen Beyond the Black Rainbow when it came out. I knew about Inkelter and that kind of stuff when it came out, but I was still kind of a noob when it came to tying it to some of the deeper stuff. And the style of the movie was so overbearing. It's almost like he's wanting to put you through <laughs> my control experiment. So I held off on it, but I went back last week and I watched Beyond the Black Rainbow and I thought it was excellent. It was a great film. I really appreciate it now. And I think I needed to see Mandy first. And that kind of initiated me properly to Panos's movies and his style. And so then when I went back and watched Beyond the Black Rainbow, it was a lot more powerful. So I would say Mandy and Beyond the Black Rainbow. Right on. <laughs> That's one I hadn't even heard of. And man, so Jay, just always a pleasure. I think you do great film analysis. I'm always learning something. Before we go, remind the people where to get the books, where to see online, and all the good stuff you got going on. Yeah, you can just go to Jay's Analysis and 
newsanalysis.com. You can find the shop there for the books. You can find the subscription there for the archives and interviews and talks that I've done on the Globalist books and all that. Full access, $4.95 a month, $6 a year. You can also watch the TV show that we did with Jay Widener one whole season. If you subscribe to Gaia, there's links there for that. And the advantage, of course, I sign all the books. So you get a signed copy if you get it from Amazon. It's not very good for the author. I also do tutoring. That's picked up quite a bit. So I, I tutor quite a few people in philosophy. So if you're interested in learning philosophy and all that stuff, you can sign up for tutoring at the Patreon there. And then my YouTube has grown a good bit. So if you would subscribe to I'm doing a lot more video content nowadays, so you can subscribe to my YouTube channel there. Awesome. And yeah, congrats on Hollywood Decoded with Jay Wiedner. Thanks. You also have another pilot out there right now too, don't you? Well, you know about that maybe as well. <laughs> I don't know what. Yeah, it's in the works. It's being shopped around. So hopefully, cross our fingers, maybe somebody will buy that. Yes, I am also in that. And I don't know. Are we allowed to talk about that? I know I didn't sign anything. There was an NDA, but I think you can say that it's out there. But I think we're just not supposed to say like a whole lot of details or anything. Fair, fair. <laughs> All right. Well, man, again, it has been a huge pleasure. Best of luck out there and keep doing what you do. Okay, man. Thank you. Have a pleasure to talk to you again, and I really appreciate having me on. Cheers. All right. Later, dude. Hallelujah, dear listeners. Hallelujah, indeed. Another one in the can, kicking off April with a great returning guest, Jay Dyer. Big thanks. I feel like THC has really built some solid bench strength over the years when it comes to guests who come back every so often and cover a new round of media in their particular lane. We got great music guys like Mark Devlin, also great movie guys. Obviously, Jay is one of those great movie guys. Probably my favorite. His impressions work really great for podcasts, too. But obviously, today, especially if you heard the second hour, the ideological differences between us were maybe a little more obvious. I wouldn't even really call them differences because Jay is an Orthodox Christian and I haven't really planted my flag anywhere at this point, and I won't. Call me a chaos ideologist. I like to pull things from wherever that I think seem to work for me because I don't really like any of the boxes I've seen enough to hop in. But I did have some questions about Jay's ideology, of course. And after the show, we were actually talking and I asked him if he was familiar with Miguel Connor because I would actually be pretty interested to hear Jay and Miguel sort of debate or rigorously discuss those two perspectives, the Orthodox Christian perspective versus Gnosticism. I'm not the guy to do it, but I think it would be a really fun thing to listen to. And he said, funny enough, I was just on with Miguel. And so I haven't checked it out yet to see if it aired, but I'm looking forward to hearing Jay on Aeon Byte talking about those differences, potentially. And that's really saying something, because I'm honestly exhausted by the ideological and philosophical and political debates that are happening across podcasting. The Ben Shapiros and Steven Crowders and even Jordan Peterson at this point I do think it's ultimately good to have a greater depth to discussion as we drift towards the idiocracy age. But sometimes it's like, 
guys, guys, who gives a shit? Just have some fun, be a good person, and enjoy your life. I mean, maybe that is what they enjoy. Obviously, they do. But regardless, I think Jay is a really good communicator and common ground finder. But even as he said, some of the things that I associate as positive aspects of a Gnostic perspective, he also considers those same things positive and also principles of his ideology. But on some of those things, I think it's good that we got into it. And it's good to know that we do kind of agree. And I'm glad we agree. And that is that. But in terms of content for this show, great start, too, with Mob Money and studios as front companies. That's the sort of stuff that I think is really juicy. Of course, that's where his book goes. So I knew that that's where this was going to go, too. But it's fun off the radar stuff. And higher side news, people always ask. How do I know when the joint sessions are? Well, they are always on either the 20th or the 25th of the month at 7 p.m. Pacific time. And it's in these wrap ups when I let you know which one we're going to be looking at this month. I bounce back and forth between these two days because if one falls on the weekend or a holiday or a commitment I have nine out of 10 times, it's easy to just pick that other day. This month is going to be on the 25th because. 420, of course, is a holiday. And with these things, I haven't been able to go live on YouTube like I was in the beginning. I don't know exactly why. I think it might be copyright strikes. It just doesn't seem to work. So instead of hundreds of people that I had, we're only getting dozens. And then only three or four or five people want to actually talk. So I would love to see more people who want to talk on the show show up and maybe even have something prepared to say, an experience that you had, a theory that you have. You know, it's a time to put your ideas and your experiences up on the main stage. At least that's what I like about it. So be there April 25th, 7 p.m. Pacific time. You will find the links a few hours before all over the place, Facebook, Twitter, Patreon, and the Plus site. Also, I've mentioned this before, but it is really happening now. So I'm going to start talking about it at the end of every show, just so I know we all get the message. But the higher side ecosystem is being redesigned, upgraded, we should say. We're combining the free and plus sites, making the archives less segmented. And I am adamant with the developers that I don't want to disrupt the listener's connection to either the plus or the free RSS feed. But when you're trying to bring two websites together, I don't know how reasonable that really is. I think these are talented guys. I've seen the design mock-ups and I'm really impressed. I'm actually quite enthusiastic. But I just want to put it out there so that you're aware that if, in say, four to six weeks from now, your feed stops updating, let's say, Even if we install a redirect, you might have to do something quite simple, like just refresh the thing. I don't know exactly what to expect, but it's good to communicate with you now rather than later if you happen to have issues getting the show because you wouldn't be hearing me then. And I'll spare you all the reasons why I'm doing it, but there are good ones from being at risk of a delisting by Google to less confusion over the segmented show archive to the fact that I plan on doing this for the rest of my life. So let's make it right for the long term. (laughs) Maybe I won't spare you the reasons why. But anyway, 
As you know, there's always a plus portion to the interviews I do, an extra hour for those who support the show with a plus subscription. And this one with Jay Dyer is no different. And in it, we talked about a little more of my Gnosticism versus Orthodox Christianity questions. Of course, that's a natural continuation of the V for Vendetta discussion. But we also talked about MK Ultra in media, things like Stranger Things, inversions of norms in media, aliens as rebranded demons. You know, I love that. And what I really loved talking to Jay about was his globalist book analysis series that he does for his paid subscribers. And that's where he talked about Jonas Salk's own writings on vaccines and their uses, which ties into our last show with Del Bigtree. And we had a lot of tie-ins today. Even K.J. Osborne got a mention. And that's fun when that happens, pretty organically, right? And we also talked about geoengineering and weather weapons spin in film, another great section from his book. I think that second hour has a lot of interesting stuff in it. And again, guys, I do really like both Esoteric Hollywood 1 and 2. Jay's books are great reads. I am thankful to him for sending me the set and signing them both. Great additions to the Higher Side bookshelf. And sometimes I sit and think, man... I have a really great collection of signed books from great authors that I've interviewed. Maybe they're my peers, I guess, but they're talented guys, and I'm lucky to know them and be involved in any way. I got the best job in the world. But that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. We do it all for you and, of course, ourselves. But I am very thankful for everyone hearing this, and I hope you keep coming back. I'm getting out of here. Your move, Hollywood wizards, culture creation occultists, and makers of that sweet, sweet 8mm magic. Your fucking move. You know the plan has always been to hack your brain. MK Ultra's trying to drive you insane. They'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes. You think I'm answering the phone? Well, I ain't. You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become Suck out everything from you in the end And if for some reason you think I might be wrong I wonder where you got that opinion from You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well you're not, you should tape the mail slot And baby if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause
stairs I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become They want a pat down and a swap Don't you see what's going on? Well now you know You're better keeping on your own Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh baby, you can only trust yourself And if you think the system's out of touch It is and you can only trust yourself Out of touch, it is, and you can only trust yourself. 